Welcome to the ESG Beat, Rupert. Nice to be with you, Amelia. Rupert, just to help contextualize your work on corporate purpose, I wanted to have the audience understand a bit more about your work in reputation more broadly. I mean, you're one of the uh, most prominent thought leaders um, and scholars on reputation. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and how it connects to purpose? Sure. So um, the centre I lead in Oxford is called the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation, and we're a research-led centre, been operating for 15 years. Um, uh, In the area of what I actually call uh, social evaluators, And what I mean by that is that we study um, uh, legitimacy, status, reputation and trust. These are all incredibly valuable assets which organisations who have those assets conferred on them can use to deliver significant advantage, either from recruiting and retaining the best talent, building the right customers and achieving pricing advantage, uh, creating very, very powerful and strong supply chains and so on and so forth. Um, so that's the that's the core of the academic work that I do. Um, the, the link to purpose, when you understand that around social evaluation, is very clear because purpose will inform how people think about you. Uh, it's an anchor. If I understand the why you exist then I'm going to understand, I hope, the types of social evaluation that that I should be conferring on you. If I think you have a good purpose, uh, 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 then I may confer you legitimacy, I may confer you status, I may confer you reputation, and I may confer you trust. So this uh, episode will focus on your leadership of the Enacting Purpose initiative. But before we delve into some of the really groundbreaking reports, Can you please give our audience an overview of the Enacting Purpose initiative uh, and what motivated you uh, to found it? Sure. So um, I guess the the crux of it was that there's so much good thinking happening around how to articulate purpose, Um, very detailed and analytical work around the types of statements, the types of uh, uh, things that companies can stand for, um, but what but what I observed is that there's there was actually conversely a lack of real detail or help uh, for organisations on how to connect the words to the actions, how to make the words mean something in practice. So the from that was born the idea of the enacting purpose initiative. And um, it very quickly became something that um, really had uh, power behind it um, because boards uh, were crying out, are still crying out for help to uh, try and connect these very difficult, sometimes very difficult um, or sort of broad subjects to the day to day of what they do. And not just boards, but investors, too, are uh, looking to try and uh, find ways in which they can understand how purpose matters to them in terms of outcomes. Um, Employees, stakeholders, the whole range of people who are what I call the ecosystem around a company, around an organisation, which is the wealth creating vehicle, of course. Um, All of those need to understand Um, more clearly how stated intent can translate into real action. 
Yeah, and that's why um, I really, the Enacting Purpose Initiative really resonated with me as well, because I observed that there's, you know, this gap that you're talking about between wanting to articulate a purpose and knowing how to enact that purpose. So that word enact is, is, uh, is really powerful. Um, but why is there so much focus on purpose today? Um, can you give us a sense of, you know, the, the present juncture that we're at and some of the, um, details about the business context, the investor context, you've alluded to a bit of it, but if you could elaborate. Sure. Um, so I think the the focus on purpose is not a new concept. I mean, organizations have been thinking about why they exist for very, very many years, ever since the start of the corporation, right back to the East India Company. If you think, go back right through history um, to the starting, to the, to the, to the start of the founding of the corporation itself, uh, people have asked why this organization, why these um, types of um, uh, structure, organizing structures exist in the first place. Who do they serve? Uh, what drives them? What decisions should they make? So <clears throat> this is not a particularly new subject, but I think it's been thrown into sharp relief by, uh, by the financial crisis, uh, number one, uh, which has uh, put real focus back onto uh, the role of business in solving some of the biggest crises and issues um, that we have facing us today. Um, and I think at the same time, uh, it's played into and become a feature uh, or an outcome of the discussion around inequality and around the role of organisations in trying to create a fairer society for those of us uh, involved um, in that sort of activity. So I think um, those two things, one is a response to the financial crash and, and the crisis that, 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 that asked the question, what actually is the role of organisations um, uh, when it comes to their responsibilities? And then the second thing is this broader question of the inequality uh, that exists. Uh, those seem to me to be uh, very uh, modern props uh, as to why purpose has come back onto the board agenda. I think the third um, feature that we spend a lot of time studying, I, I personally spend a lot of time studying, is this is what I call hyperconnectivity. Um, mm -hmm. 30, 40 years ago, uh, organizations could segment the way they interacted with their suppliers, their employees, their investors, their customers. Uh, today, I think it's incredibly difficult to do that. What you have is you've got context collapse where people need to align everything. And when you're trying to align sometimes very different stakeholder needs, that puts a real pressure back onto the fundamental question of why you exist. So for all those three reasons, purpose is back. Um, I personally welcome it. I think purpose is a fantastic North Star. If you're asking about why purpose matters, purpose really acts done well purpose acts as a north star for decision making it's not a culture mechanism i think a lot of people think about it as either marketing or culture um, it does have implications of course for those things but when it really is powerful is when it drives the decisions you make acting uh, as you and i talked about in our in our in our report as both a both a north star for what are the right decisions and wrong decisions uh, which are faced uh, by the board or what are the trade-offs that they should make in terms of where they allocate their capital 
but also the guardrails, which is where uh, where might they be tempted to go, but are actually outside of the why they exist as an organization. Rupert, one thing that's impressed me about the Enacting Purpose Initiative is um, how international, how global it is in nature. Can you weigh in on that? Did that aspect surprise you? Were you expecting more variation between jurisdictions as you've studied purpose? So I think, look, it's a great question. It's a complex question to answer, to be honest. Um, um, I think if I try and simplify it down, the way I see it is that purpose is a global uniting idea. The idea that organisations need to have a why they exist. I don't think that's contested in any part of the world. What I think is then different are two fundamental structural changes, um, structural themes which differ around the world. The first is the legal architectures around the world. So you have different corporate legal structures, different um, uh, corporate law mechanisms, uh, uh, different accountabilities, different directors' duties. This is a you know this is a grab bag of different approaches depending on wherever you are in the world. Um, if you are operating a business in India, Brazil, China, Spain, the US or the UK, you're going to operate under very different legal frameworks. So I think that's the first uh, uh, sort of a complexity that comes in. Um, uh, and the second complexity is, and this is the bit that I knew would be there, but I didn't realise just how fundamental this would be, is this very big, lively argument between which stakeholders matter. Uh, right. This question of uh, shareholder primacy versus stakeholder primacy. Um now, of course, you know, this is a debate that's gone on for years um, and arguably has been misconstrued even right from the start because Milton Friedman didn't answer. He didn't argue particularly just that everyone else should be ignored. He argued that actually other stakeholders would 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 be aligned if you have a singular focus. Um, but equally, the stakeholder movement has tried to position this as being almost an antidote to 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 Friedman and that's wrongly positioned as well because any stakeholder universe has to have investors as part of it so stakeholders includes investors so I think actually there's a middle ground where both are talking about the same thing but and this was the real insight or the really surprising bit for me is that when you are in North America there is absolutely a beating capitalist heart which prioritizes and indeed is supported by the legal architecture that that prioritizes and supports this idea that your primary responsibility and sometimes articulated as your only responsibility is to deliver profits whereas the european uh, work that we did uh, produced a much much more rounded nuanced and stakeholder friendly picture um, partly driven by again the legal structures by some of the history and heritage if you think about uh, you know the um, supervisory board structures in Germany, the, uh, the, the, the different corporate governance codes and requirements across Europe and certainly in the UK, of course, as well. So that was the bit that in the work that we did together, um, I knew it would exist. I didn't quite realise just how markedly different uh, the North American and European um, groups that we engaged with would, uh, would be. Thank you. Thank you for those insights. And I couldn't agree with you more with respect to the, you know, uh, shareholder versus stakeholder debate being uh, very much of a, of a false uh, uh, dichotomy. 
I wanted to move to the SCORE framework because despite these nuances um, between jurisdictions, the SCORE framework provides a very practical and useful tool for enacting purpose. Can you walk us through that framework? Yeah, well, thank you. It's um, This is a framework which uh, I developed as part of the first report uh, that we did, which came out of uh, the European uh, discussions that we were having and um, was then um, taken on in the second report because it's an idea, a simple, clear framework and structure which has a very compelling power behind it. Um, it does exactly, if you like, what we tried to say on the tin, which is we're interested in how to enact purpose and this is a simple, clear way that that can be done. So the SCORE framework um, seeks to uh, uh, answer the question, what can boards do? Uh, practically, what should they focus on? What should executives or boards actually focus on to enable uh, purpose to be enacted? And its uh, its starting point is that you can't really have a prescriptive set of you know easy fit plugins uh, because every single business is going to have different things that they're focused on. So you can't uh, be directive around you must have climate change. Um, uh, um, uh, commitments uh, even though most of course I think almost everyone does but there's going to be different ways in which those type of specific commitments will be put so this was meant to be a more um, of a thematic approach um, trying to give you a set of tools and mm -hmm. governance tools in particular uh, to ensure that your intent is translated so the school framework is an um, is an acronym of course um, uh, and and score if I walk it through very quickly score um, the s in score uh, stands for simplify now uh, it's one of the most powerful observations in all of the work that we've been doing over the last 10 15 years that most organizations are too complex they try and explain too much and they use too many words so the first call is is it simple enough the second uh, um, letter the C of score stands for connect and this comes back to this absolutely central point that purpose well constructed is not a, just a marketing or cultural tool what it is is a driver of strategy so the second board question is how does your purpose actually connect to the things that you do the O in score stands for ownership and that's really the simple question, who owns it? Everything in an organisational structure needs to have some form of governance and ownership attached to it. You need to be clear about where purpose sits. Uh, some people have argued that purpose needs to sit at the board. Some people have argued it needs to sit in committees. Some people argue, would argue that it's the responsibility of everyone. There's no right answer to that. But the simple point is ask the question and be clear about where it sits in your organisation. The R... Uh, stand, in score stands for reward. Everything that is going to have meaning needs to have a reward system attached. And reward is not just monetary. That's often a mistake that people make. Reward is about how do you uh, build the incentive systems that drive that behaviour through the organisation, drive the purpose intent into purpose action. So rewards can be, uh, um, be, be promotions. Of course, they can be paid, but they could be promotions. They could be um, uh, joining a really fun team. 
It could be having access to a brilliant new client or brilliant new project. It could be working overseas in a different office. Um, there, there are a whole range of these type of incentives which can be rewarded. And the final E uh, uh, letter, which is the E of SCORE, is exemplify. Now, this is basically storytelling. Um, uh, almost every single organisation that is trying to achieve connection from the words to actions needs to tell great stories. Uh, and this is, this, is, this is what's emerged out of all the different five elements as one of the most important elements. Uh, often people think storytelling is just a tactic. Uh, I could not disagree more. In this case, storytelling is a very powerful way of humanising what is often written in a very sort of uh, manufactured way uh, by very senior executives who think their language is incredibly connective and very clever, but actually doesn't do anything of the sort. Storytelling breaks those barriers down. Storytelling enables people to understand exactly what it is that they're supposed to do at nine o'clock tomorrow morning having heard that five o'clock the day before, what the purpose is. So that's the score framework. Uh, simplify, connect, own, reward, and then tell examples. Thank you. And that, um, you know, the directors who I've spoken to about the score framework just emphasize how helpful it is in um, enabling them to enact purpose so that it's not just words on a page, but it is really baked into the strategy of uh, the um, enterprise. And um, I couldn't agree with you more with respect to storytelling. So um, I, I'm wondering if you could give us a, an example of a company that uh, has implemented the SCORE framework in a way that is very effective in enacting purpose. Well, I'll give you a couple of different ones. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of usual ones uh, where uh, which I think everyone has heard of and everyone says the same time. So uh, so uh, Unilever were a part of our European steering group. Patagonia uh, was part of our steering group in the US. And both of those organizations are uh, are fantastic at uh, creating actionable journeys which come from their statement. Um, uh, they didn't rely on the score, but they were probably well ahead of us um, when it came to the idea of this, but they liked the way in which it put a structure around what they do in practice. Um, so both of those organisations, as you'd expect, um, uh, would be champions for this. Thank you for those examples. So let's move very briefly to the second report. So the second report um, was um, a uh, a really important step forward for us. Um, it's uh, it for the very first time. Well, obviously, it captured the voices from North America, um, uh, which we hadn't done in our first report. But it also included a really important additional um, set of interviews and insights from the global investment community, both asset owners and asset managers. So uh, it was a very, very important step forward. And what we quite quickly found, uh, and you'll remember this, of course, what we quite quickly found is that um, there was an element of, well, neither side understands the other. Uh, so you had the corporate board saying, well, we keep getting asked for all this stuff by investors, but they don't realize how difficult it is. And they also are asking for unreasonable stuff. Um, yes. And investors, on the other hand, were saying, well, you know, if it's so important, why aren't companies explaining it better? And, you know, they're the ones who are making it more difficult for us to get behind this purpose idea. So you had this sort of 
disconnect uh, between these two very important stakeholders. And I found that particularly interesting and important uh, 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 and it acted as a really important, I suppose, guide for us in that second report. Because what we ended up doing is uh, drawing in insights from the different stakeholder groups, um, in fact, four groups. But we then brought, uh, uh, brought the report together into what we felt was the shared common ground. And the shared common ground, you know, a discussion you and I had many times around exactly how do we, how do we, how do we connect these dots together? Because it it seemed to us, I seem to remember us talking a lot about this. It seemed to us that there was so much more common ground than either group actually really thought about. That's um, right. And we identified these five, I think, really valuable areas. You know, uh, one is that everyone wanted it to be strategic. It had to be something that was connected to real actions and not just window dressing or green washing. Um, secondly, it had to be well informed and well informed meant that it had to uh, have voices that were not necessarily traditional voices within the board. And that, and that encompassed the need for diversity, inclusion, respect, all of these different um, um, parts of uh, engaging the right inputs into the process uh, from the different stakeholders involved. Um, uh, the th and the third was, uh, th was this connection. I mean, it had to be properly connected to decision making. Everyone knew that. The fourth is it had to be well governed. And so the score framework again came into its own in that respect. And the fifth one is that it had to be properly communicated because actually a lot of this really just felt like it was poor communication. Um, I'm often struck by the idea uh, told to me by a great friend uh, who used to, who was one of the co-founders of Twitter, who said to me that actually often um, when it comes to purpose and mission, you get these sort of bar brawl environments where people walk into a bar, shout at the top of their voice, which is what they want to do and walk out again. Um, <laughs> and that doesn't seem to be like a sensible conversation at all. Um, in fact, you wouldn't do that in a bar. You would walk in and listen. And often I think the communication activity seems to be about transmit rather than actually receive. Uh, so a lot of the communication um, uh, work uh, that we highlighted was this need to be dyadic, this need to actually be on receive as well as transmit. And once you start listening as well as talking, you can really achieve some quite significant steps forward. So I, 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 I don't know if you agree, but those those five clear elements, I think, came out as being really, really important shared ground um, and ground on which both, you know, the investors and the corporate boards and also policymakers and others could get quite seriously behind. And you'd make a big step forward on purpose um, if they managed to do so. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And the report also helped articulate, even for me, the... Uh, distinction between purpose, ESG, and stakeholder governance or stakeholder dialogue. And what, what you've been uh, alluding to is that stakeholder dialogue piece and how crucial it is for enacting purpose. But it's not the same thing as purpose, and, and it's not the same thing as ESG, and those three things are so often confused and conflated. Thank you so much for walking us through the first two reports. What are you working on now? So um, I think the first thing is uh, getting quite serious about this idea of separating out the ESG grab bag because we don't want to lose it. But I think we can make a lot more progress if we are uh, clearer about what are the 
emerging norms then that do exist uh, uh, um, in the E, for example, um, uh, where once you have those emerging norms, you can really make some progress as people people get behind those emerging norms. And then I think you've got the second area of the S where there's actually quite um, a need for some uh, norm development because um, you know, there's, there's very little in the way of um, uniform consensus on quite a few of the issues around DNI, representation, uh, political advocacy, lobbying. I mean, the whole range of these things all sit within the the S of ESG, and that's and that's much more contested space. So some work around that, I think that will define a lot of the work we're trying to do over the next couple of years. Um, uh, but the other big area, of course, is measurement. Um, so we published a paper um, uh, last year, um, uh, which was looking at ways in which we can start to think more carefully about measurement. How do you measure progress against your purpose? And um, we put forward a very simple um, uh, idea, very powerful idea, I think, which um, is one of the most downloaded SSRN papers, actually. So it's had some has some traction with certain audiences. We hope it'll have some real engagement with directors and with the people responsible for the measurement and reporting systems around purpose. But the simple idea really is that measurement for a long time seemed to be around um, a, a sort of dyadic approach, which was tell us what your intent is on the left-hand side, and then we'll measure the financial impact of that in some way on the right-hand side. And there's so much in the middle that gets lost when you try and do that. And also you're directing the measurement purely to financial outcomes as opposed to impact outcomes. So we proposed, if I simplify down, a what, what I refer to as a missing middle. And the missing middle of measurement is that you need to have an, an intermediate stage. So you have on your left, you've got what's, what's my intent. The middle is what are the outcomes that I'm seeing from that? And then you move to, so, and what's the financial benefits that emerge for me? Um, uh, so that missing middle, uh, which is around what do you see in terms of societal improvements? What do you see in terms of access to healthcare, access to water, access to food? Uh, whatever your particular element is, whatever your particular focus is, there are going to be some really important outcome measurements, which by themselves are incredibly valuable. Um, and you don't have to move it to that final stage of what's the financial benefit to you. Uh, and in doing that, of course, that enables and unlocks so much more that you can do around measurement because measurement gets stuck about, well, how do you measure this year's benefit versus next year's benefit? How do you make sure that it translates into a direct PL or is it a long-term capital improvement? Is it, I mean, there's all, all that accounting can come after the impact work. Um, and the impact work has got so much more measurement attached to it. There's lots and lots of statistics. So for example, if I may, I'm going to give a shout out to... Um, a charity that I'm, I, I, I chair the governance and nominating committee of called the Halo Trust, which uh, does very dangerous work, taking very dangerous mines out of the ground. Uh, we have 450 deminers currently in Ukraine, for example, who are now facing some work trying to uh, help people uh, not to pick up, you know, these very dangerous cluster bombs to escape and, and do risk mine education and so on and so forth in very difficult circumstances. But when you think about measurement of our impact, we can literally say this is the amount of acres that have been cleared and made safe. 
these are the numbers of families that have been able to resettle because the mines out of the ground are safe. Uh, now, now, how do you put a monetary value on those? It, it's, it's much more difficult and contested to put that monetary value because right. you could put it from a government perspective about, well, uh, we're saving you healthcare costs. We could look at ways in which you're uh, supporting the community engagement or at least the community resettlement budgets. But it's a much more contested monetary moment. What you can do, however, is absolutely be clear about the impact that you're having. So that missing middle, we think, offers a really interesting and important step. And of course, we're not inventing the wheel here. There's a lot of great work that's being done by organisations where they do talk about their impact. Sure. Um, yeah. And weirdly, this is actually one of the areas where I think you see the tension between companies and investors, where investors say, yeah, 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 we get it. We get it. You're doing all this wonderful stuff. But what's the financial benefit? And I think sometimes investors have got to understand that organisations have the legitimacy to operate in their environments because they contribute to these types of initiatives. And they wouldn't have access to the resources and materials to produce the profits and returns that they think that they get. Uh, unless they do these things. Um, and sometimes the question is not right to ask, well, what's the immediate one year, three year, five year financial benefit? It's not, that's not a relevant or helpful question. And I think investors are starting to understand that and companies are starting to understand that equally, they have a responsibility to try and be a little bit more directional about how their impact work is actually improving their um, operating profitability. So, you know, that's a classic example of the middle ground, I think. Well, Something that you said resonated so strongly with me, which is legitimacy. Um, the social license to operate um, is crucial, increasingly crucial, yet it is very hard to value that, uh, you know, in a, in a P&L statement, for example. Um, but I think that that is absolutely right. The impact metrics can enhance the legitimacy and uh, strengthen the social license to operate for companies, and that is really invaluable. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that work on the missing middle. It is um, very, very exciting. Um, so at the end of uh, each ESG beat, I like to give our guests two parting gifts, a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. Rupert, if, if you could wave your magic wand that I just gave to you and remove something or maybe two things, uh, that would make it easier for boards uh, and executives as well to enact purpose. What would that be? Well, I'll take the two if I may, rather than the one. Um, so the first is, re is to remove quarterly reporting. That drives mm -hmm. short-termism and focuses people on the wrong things. And the second um, is to remove the requirement for separate sustainability or ESG reports. If it's absolutely strategic, it should be in the operating review, not as a separate, separate, separate reported vehicle. Embed it directly in, in the operating reports of what you do. I agree. I wish I could give you a magic wand, but... <laughs> But maybe maybe it's just a very slow magic wand with, with many, many reports and a, a lot of terrific advocacy. Um, so now let's go on to the crystal ball. Where do you, I mean, you talk to so many uh, boards and executives and policymakers. Uh, where do you see us headed with respect to purpose? Um, so the crystal ball 
who knows? But uh, I tell you what I believe in. Okay. Um, and I believe that leadership today um, demands and requires a very different set of inputs, uh, a very different belief system. Um, we've taught at business schools, yours, mine, uh, competitive leadership forever, right? This idea that you establish market dominance or market entry strategies, you have competitive pricing, you build competitive dynamics for your employees, your talent, uh, you build customer um, uh, um, premium pricing. This is all good stuff, by the way, and I'm not saying that competitive leadership is bad. I'm just saying that that's been absolutely the dominant focus of business education uh, and leadership practice as a result. Um, I think now that the uh, that what's required um, uh, and this crystal ball, uh, if I'm right, I think we'll get there, is not competitive leadership, but collaborative leadership. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that um, the leaders of tomorrow will be as expert in building consensus and connecting uh, for serious impact the different parts of their ecosystem that they operate within um, uh, in just as powerful a way as they have been able to develop their competitive instincts and their competitive strategies. So the leaders of tomorrow, I hope and I believe, uh, will be those who can uh, build uh, these wonderfully powerful collaborations where you can achieve outcomes based on a grouping of shared expertise coming together to solve a problem. That, I think, is it's coming. It's very welcome. And please give me my crystal ball. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert, for your um, research, for your advocacy and for your insights and for sharing your time with us today. Well, it's a great pleasure. Very nice to talk with you.